0: Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to plug one last time that we'll be recording our first live episode of Enterprising Individuals at Convergence 2017 in the Twin Cities this Friday at 8.30 p.m. at the Con. If you're going to Convergence or you're going to be in the area and you're thinking of going, get to the show. We're talking about the one and only Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and I'm joined on the show by author and former show guest William Leisner, author and comedian Patrick Tomlinson, author and Convergence guest of honor Naomi Kritzer, and comic artist Christopher Jones. There's still tickets available for Convergence if you want to go. It's easily the best con I've ever been to, and you will not regret it if you choose to go. If you can't make it, the audio for our first show will be available to our Patreon subscribers. If you go to patreon.com forward slash EIST pod, you can join the crew of our patrons for as little as $1. And there's many ranks at which you can join and enjoy the privileges of said rank. When you enlist with our Patreon, you get access to special patron content like our live shows and our live blog of our upcoming Star Trek Deep Space Nine rewatch and commentary. So head to patreon.com forward slash EIST pod and sign up so you don't miss out. When we come back next week for our supplemental show, as a little treat, we'll have some extra content from Convergence, including an interview with longtime Star Trek actor Tracy Lee Coco. You may know her best as Ensign J. from Star Trek The Next Generation. So come back next week to find out what was really going on between her and Captain Picard at Data's Poetry Reading. In the meantime, if you're not following us on Facebook or Twitter, now's a great time to do that, to get updates about the show and the world of Trek, and where we are headed in the future. And as always, if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Get the word out there. And with that, let's get underway.
1: It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're
0: thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Scaling Freakness is open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and I, for one, am sad that no one will ever sit at Commodore Travers's table again. He set a good table. I'm joined on this episode by New York Times best-selling author Dayton Ward, who has written many Star Trek novels and short stories, often with co-author and collaborator Kevin Dillmore. He's also written for Star Trek Communicator and Star Trek Magazine, and for sites like Tor.com and Star Trek.com. He's also a regular contributor to Novel Spaces, a blog where writers from different genres provide insight and advice on various writing topics. Dayton, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Arena, the 18th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series, and an episode that in a lot of ways, came to define, I think, what people think of when they think about Star Trek. I mean, people remember Tribbles, they know Spock's beard and, and, and Beam Me Up Scotty, but when you show them two rocks pointing into the sky and Kirk wrestling with <laughs> a lizard man, they undoubtedly have a strong mental image associated with that, whether they're a fan or not.
1: I agree. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably one of my all-time favorite warts-and-all episodes of Star Trek, period. I Yes, this was the show that I used to look forward to. You know, one of the ones you used to look forward to in the rerun package back in the day when they used to string it day after day after, after school. This was the one I was always hoping was on when I came home from school. (laughs) Um, And it's,
0: yeah, it's one you can't get away from uh, sometimes too. And we'll talk about some of those warts. I'm sure as we go on. Oh uh, yeah. Talk about the episode. Uh, But first your backstory, how did you become a fan? Uh, You spoke about watching Star Trek after school.
1: Oh yeah. I was a fan from, I wasn't, I was born in the '60s, so I was actually, you know, like just a, a, a baby when the show was on originally. Sure. I didn't, I didn't pick it up until they started doing reruns in the early '70s, and I, it was that that hour of Star Trek every day after school was the lone exception that my mother gave me to no TV before homework or chores. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> I was allowed to watch Star Trek, and that was it. And then I had to do my homework and and all that. So I, I, I watched that all the time. It was a constant. I mean, they used to run it every day after school. And then on Saturdays, along with other shows, reruns of other shows like lost in space or the voyage to the bottom of the sea and stuff like that. And then, um, I watched the animated series original broadcast on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, that so I go that far back and then, you know, I used to play with the toys and build the models and, uh, read the comic books and we used to play it outside. You know, you get your friends together and we pretend to be Captain Kirk and the landing party and,
0: did you have uh, to, did you fight over who got to be Kirk or somebody specific?
1: I think we fought a few times, I forget. I mean, we had those big clunky uh, Mego, walkie-talkie communicators with the yes. biggest and all that stuff and we used to go to the playground. Uh, I was a, I was a military brat, so you know, the, we had this massive playground in the center of the housing area where we where we lived and it had oh. one of those big balls with ladders and slides and all that stuff in the middle of it and that was the enterprise. So, right. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, you know, back in the days when we used to run outside and use our imaginations because we didn't have video games yet. So
0: right now there's Star Trek VR where you can be a,
1: uh, I know, a captain right? yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I kind of want to do that all over again. So
0: how am I going to talk my wife into letting me get that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Let me know. Let me know how you do it so I can try that. Format. Sure. I'll
0: pass it on. Sure.
1: Uh, sure you're th- go for it.
0: You're a three-time contributor to the Strange New Worlds collection, uh, the first to do so. And as such, you had an unofficial award named after you called The Wardy. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, One of my friends, uh, uh, who was also a contributor to the contest, um, came up with that um, after (laughs) the third win. um, Because as fate would have it, I was the first one to render myself ineligible to enter the contests. Uh um, right. cause it's only for new writers and you can only do up to three professional short stories because now I'm a quote professional writer, you know, in air quotes. Right. <laughs> um, right. So once I got the third win, the editor at the time, John Ordover, uh, called me that to to tell me that I'd won the third or I'd gotten a birth in the third anthology. And he said, I, I I'd like you to write a Star Trek novel for me. So that's, that's kind of how I got my start and I've been doing it ever since.
0: Sure. So you graduated in a sense,
1: in a sense, I graduated, I, I wrote a novel for them. And then um, I worked with some of the – they had an e-book publishing program where they were putting out a novella every month, and that's how Kevin and I started writing together. It was our, our first fiction collaboration was one of those ebook novellas for the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series. Okay, okay. And so that was also serving as something of a farm team, you a know, minor league team.
0: Right, uh, yeah.
1: And so because several people who first started with credits in that series graduated to novels, and some of them are still writing Star Trek, and some of them have moved on to other types of writing, or they're doing both depending on the individual. That's how I got my start. That's my secret origin story.
0: (laughs) I'm thinking of doing the same for this show once a contributor has been on three times, and we retire them to emeritus status, and we name an (laughs) award after them. There you go. I'm not sure who's in the leader uh, box right now, uh, but we're close to uh, a Coxie or maybe a Mackie award right now. Oh,
1: wow. Okay. I didn't realize those guys were so busy. Yeah, you got to catch
0: it. up. <laughs> so I'm guessing you're a fan of this episode. Can you tell me why you want to discuss this one particularly?
1: Mostly because it's a favorite. Uh, it's a fair. It's a personal favorite. I mean, we're talking from childhood. I've sure. never not loved the episode. I-, I get what's wrong with it. It's kind of goofy in places, <laughs> but I don't care because when I watch it, I'm 10 years old again. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's also one of the stellar examples of the the test story, you know, where uh, an advanced alien species tests humanity to see if right. it's worthy of something. Right. Uh, I mean, granted, and Star Trek did a lot of those, particularly in the original show, and they did what three or four of them just in the first season, it seems like. Um, so this wasn't even the first one this season. Uh, the right. Cold maneuver was the first one. So it's yeah. like, but it becomes a it becomes something of a trope, you know, within the show uh, very oh, quickly. Yeah. Um, and you know it has all the cool things that you love about a star trek it's got it's got action it's got kirk getting a fight it is getting his shirt torn uh, <laughs> he's having to be the action hero it's got a message uh you know it, it it makes you examine your your motives and your and your reasons for for undertaking rash action and uh, it's just it's just a classic staple star trek story
0: yeah so, it's interesting that you mentioned the trope too of, of the test by a higher civilization, because it seems like even when they started uh, Next Generation, they were still right so much of the DNA game. was there that they started and ended the series with that. Yeah,
1: I mean, and, and and you know they put a spin on it. They they turned they turned Q into something of a of a of a rogue or roving protagonist or antagonist for Picard. Sure. Um. So I mean, that's fine, but yeah, even. I even laughed at that when I remember watching Encounter at Farpoint the first time, thinking, God, right out of the gate, we're we're embracing every cool trope Trek ever had, right? You know, we're not even going to shirk away from it; we're just going right out. All that's left is the, and they even had a barrier. I mean, all we, you know, they even had the barrier that the Enterprise runs in and to, and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, good lord, it's like it's like living in the 60s all over again.
0: Right, right. Kind of smoothing the transition, uh, possibly for old fans into new
1: adventures of a new crew. And we're sitting there, like, all I need is a hokey indoor planet set. And bam, there it is. Yes. (laughs) I love this show.
0: I don't think Picard's going to be karate chopping anybody
1: anytime soon, though. That would be cool to see a flying leg kick from Picard. Right. (laughs) That's on a bucket list. That's a a bucket list item, so –
0: Well, we're talking about Arena. It is the 18th episode of the first season. It first aired on January 19th of 1967. Uh, The teleplay was by Gene Elkoun. The story, in this case, was by Frederick Brown, and I'll mention him again in a few moments. And it was directed by Joseph Pevney, who, along with Mark Daniels, is one of the most prolific directors of the original series. He also directed The City on the Edge of Forever... Amok Time and the Trouble with Tribbles amongst others so some real classics there. This was his first episode for Star Trek and he brought it in on time in 6 days even though it was expected to run for 7 days with the outdoor shoots and everything and he received a $500 bonus for that. And that? the st- starting on this episode is 3045.6. Which I, they don't make any sense. I don't think in the original series I you can't find a thread there. But
1: just roll with it. Roll with it. Yeah,
0: pretty much. Uh, your mission, if you can, is to give us a twenty-five word synopsis of Arena.
1: A twenty-five word synopsis. I'm a writer. That's... I get paid by the word. I don't <laughs> right. use 20, I don't use twenty-five. If eighty-five will do. Um, <laughs> okay, I see. Kirk encounters a new alien life form and is tested. I don't. I don't know. I can't do this. Kirk is tested by a <laughs> superior alien life form. You know, while, while battling a newly encountered alien species and hijinks ensue. So. And karate chops. And karate chops. That should there get you to 25 right there.
0: Yeah, it gets you to 25. There you go. Uh, perfect. Uh, the teleplay, uh, as I said before, is credited to Gene Kuhn. Uh, he wrote what he thought was an original script for the episode. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, Desilu's research department found that the sci-fi and mystery writer, Frederick Brown, had penned a similar story 23 years before. It was published in Astounding Science Fiction Magazine. So the production reached out to Brown to get permission to, quote, adapt, unquote, his story. And he agreed to that. and was compensated for. He gets the story credit, of course. Uh, he probably didn't know they did it in the reverse order, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I I've read the story as it's as it's relayed to us in uh, Inside Star Trek, the the book written by Herb Solo and Bob Justman.
0: Right, right. And
1: I don't necessarily I know it's a gray area because you know I mean he he the the way the story goes is he didn't even realize he had done it until he was told he had done it, and right. then of course reacted her you know horrified because as a writer the last thing you want to hear is that you've lifted material from another writer. Yeah even inadvertently. Um, So I I get why they scrambled to to cover their bases, and I'm sure Frederick Brown, if he had ever been told the story, would have understood the circumstances and not held it against them. I mean, after all, they did make the effort to seek him out and provide proper credit. And it's interesting that that's the only story in the original series that cops to being based on other material.
0: Yeah, I remember an anecdote from, I believe it was Trouble of Tribbles, where uh, David Gerald had, uh, you know, he'd written tribbles into the script, obviously, and then later on found out that there was some kind of similar creature in a Heinlein book. Yeah. And this was long after the episode had aired, and so they kind of sheepishly contacted Heinlein, and he said, um, don't worry about it. All I want is a signed copy of the script from David Gerald, because
1: I really like the show. And Heinlein was a cool cat, so. Yeah, he was cool. But I mean, it, it's, it's just rare to. to to see that I mean in Star Trek I mean considering all the different types of stories that are told throughout oh, yeah, all the different yeah, episodes certainly. and series you would think more would be inspired by some other tale. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure they are. They just don't necessarily cop to it every time, you know, or, or it's inadvertent.
0: Well, as somebody who is a prol- prolific writer yourself, have you ever worked for a while on something and then realized, "Oh, I, I totally stole this from something else?"
1: Not not outright stole something, but it's like you can tell, you know, I, you'll sit back and go, "That's where that idea comes from, or obviously there's a similarity to that idea or, uh, you put another spin on it or something like that. I mean, yeah. Uh, but outright I copied another story subconsciously or something. No, not not to my knowledge. Um,
0: I've heard it described as, um, cryptomnesia. Um, mostly in relation to um, Vladimir Nabokov wrote uh, Lolita. It was published in 1955. And there's a 1916 short story by a guy named Heinz von Lichtenberg. It's only 16 pages long, but it is essentially the same plot as Lolita. And so the guy that found this out was just pointing it out. He wasn't like trying to accuse Nabokov of stealing, but he's like, maybe the guy read this story like in the 20s. And it sort of unconsciously uh, influenced him in writing his own book.
1: Could be. I mean, it happens. I'm, I'm sure it happens far more often than any, all of us would care to admit. But I don't necessarily yeah. think there's anything malicious in, oh, in no. the intent. You know, except in very rare cases where somebody just deliberately lifts material. So yeah, I just I was always fascinated that, particularly because they brought in so many science fiction fiction science fiction writers for the original show that you would not see more of that like particularly when you're dealing with people like ted sturgeon and uh richard yeah. matheson and, and yeah. people like and, and there's there's you know arguments to be made that richard matheson a couple of his stories are inspired by some of his own fiction he, he may not have said outright this is an adaptation of my other story but there's obviously an influence at work in some of those tales yeah. Um, and
0: then Roddenberry would go in and rewrite them anyway. So,
1: yeah. So, I mean, it's just interesting because of the period when the show was produced and, and the people he was using or he was employing as freelancers that uh, we didn't see more of that.
0: But, yeah. That's something we talk about a lot in the show about how nobody really knew what Star Trek was just yet. I mean, today, I'm sure the writers who work for Discovery both know the beats of a Star Trek show, but they also have to be careful to try to not you know replicate any of the 700 episodes that have come before. And it's kind of a thin line to walk.
1: It's always a challenge. I mean, and it's the same sort of challenge that that we face when we're writing the novels and stuff is to try sure. to to tread ground that's you know been well worn and well traveled. But uh, it's hard. It's it is, it is hard to try to put a different spin on something uh, when something's been going nearly continuously for fifty years in one form or another. <laughs> yeah, no it's, kidding. It's, it's hard to come up with something fresh. That's why you get the big bucks. Yeah. That's yeah. Tell my boss that, will you? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, Vic Perrin provides the voice of the Metron in this episode, although the Metron is played by actress Caroline Barry. Perrin was, of course, the voice of Control in The Outer Limits, and he was the voice of Nomad in The Chainsling. He was also on screen in Trek as Tharn of the Halkin Council in Mirror Mirror. And the arena plan in this episode was, of course, filmed at the Vasquez Rocks Natural Area Park in northern L.A. County in California, As were several other Trek episodes like Friday's Child. Many other productions had filmed there before Trek, such as the film Werewolf in London, the Rin Tin Tin TV series, The Outer Limits, Bonanza, and the Wild Wild West. It's also been a shooting location for movies like Blazing Saddles, Dante's Peak, uh, Star Trek V, F Troop and MacGyver also filmed there, and so did the Michael Jackson video Black or White. And at this point, these rocks appear in films as a reference to themselves these days. Oh, yeah. um, they were in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and the film Paul. They also feature prominently in the show Roswell, which, of course, had Jonathan Frakes as an executive producer and Ronald D. Moore as a co-executive producer and writer. So that doesn't seem like an accident.
1: They're everywhere. I mean, I see them all the time in all kinds of shows. They're in, in, everything is varied as NCIS to uh, oh, yeah. Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah, back. Right. They're in, yeah they're everywhere I mean they are their own they are their own trope at this point yeah
0: and uh, at this point with um, people like YouTube and just citizen video uh, a lot of people just go out there to shoot you know Star Trek parodies or stuff yep. like that you can see them on YouTube a lot
1: I have never been but it is on my bucket list to go the next time yeah mine
0: too yeah.
1: That I, I need to get out there and get a picture taken where I'm standing up there on the peak and right <laughs> you, you can't be a Star Trek fan and not it's like a pilgrimage you know to Mecca
0: you got to bring your bamboo cannon though when you go yes to- I will <laughs> uh, though lesser recognized, the Cestus Three fort set is now less significant. It's appeared in episodes of Wild Wild West, Bonanza, Bat Masterson, and an episode of Mission Impossible that was coincidentally entitled Trek.
1: <laughs> you know, be, the two location shoots uh, really served to make this episode look bigger than it has any business being. based on uh-huh. – you know what I mean? It's just like yeah. it really – it really goes a long way toward expanding the production value of the episode and just making it look bigger and, and bolder than, than your typical Star Trek episode. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, and uh, especially because the, the ship scenes are just only the bridge really.
1: Yeah, the bridge and maybe I think the captain's cabin uh, and maybe the trans- and the transporter room. But that's it. I mean right. the, the rest of the time is spent out on location. and yeah. it, it just gives the show uh, a more epic feel in this one instance about there's, there's a lot going on. It's really serious. And I I just love that. I love it when when Star Trek is able to do that, particularly the original show. I mean, that was one of the things that kind of disappoints me as the show goes on and the budgets get slashed and you don't see location shooting and they rely too much on the bottle shows or on the on the planet set. And it does hurt the production in those later episodes. But in the first season, man, they were going for broke.
0: Yeah, they really were. Uh, The Gorn costume was designed by veteran prop maker Watt Chang, whose connection to Star Trek as the designer of many of the show's iconic props and models was hidden for years due to a Union News boot. I I won't go into it right now, but it's a fascinating story, and you can read more about it online or in the book you mentioned, Inside Star Trek, uh, by Bob Justman. And the Gorn's wardrobe was, of course, designed by Bill Theis. Um, after shooting, the Gorn costume was put into Adjustment's office along with the mannequin from the Naked Time because it, he just collects things from the set, I guess, to
1: scare people or something. That and the uh, Baylock from the Corbomite Maneuver. Uh, oh yes, yes, that's right. It. Yes. And, and for the longest time, um, a replica of the Gorn and the Salt Vampire um, would hang out in the corridors and offices over at CBS Licensing. Uh, really? They just like guard. Oh. The, they would guard the bathroom or whatever. Okay, uh, sure. <laughs> so I don't. I want to say that those guys are on location, or they're on. They've been loaned out to uh, that original series Trek tour uh, that you can oh, buy okay High New York. You know, the one where they they've recreated a, the floor yep. plan of the, of the sound stage at Desilu, and you can walk the corridors and touch all the things. And another bucket list item.
0: So, yeah, definitely yeah. for sure. Uh, and this episode features the first mention of photon torpedoes, uh, F phasers, and the first mention of the Federation, as in the United Federation of Planets. So the world building is you know, it's still going on at this point. It's got a lot going on, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really <laughs> does. It really does. Uh, let, let's let's get into it. Let's talk about it. Uh, this episode, of course, is iconic in star, uh, star Trek and sci-fi history, and it has so many elements that you mentioned before that people consider prime Trek. You've got a mysterious planet that looks... Death Valley adjacent. Uh, Kirk's judo chopping. He's jumping off rocks. Uh, you got red shirts dying. Godlike aliens, rubber-suited aliens. Uh, Spock is narrating what Kirk is doing, <laughs> uh, to the point where all you have to do is you have to show a shot of the Vasquez Rocks, and immediately your audience is like, "Oh, okay, they're they're doing a Star Trek thing." There you go. Do you think that these combination of elements somehow synergistically create something that's that's memorable uh, to people or? Was this always just going to be entertaining? Famous people are always going to remember this.
1: I I don't know that they had any deliberate intent to to have this episode stand out from the pack. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure that every episode was approached as let's make it the best we can be. Sure. Um, uh, just over time and the fact that so much of, of what is def- so much is so much of what defines Star Trek for the masses, you know, the people who are not fluent in the mythology is in right. this episode. Yes, um, I mean you could basically take this episode, the Tribbles episode, "City on the Edge of Forever," Mirror Universe episode, and the Doomsday Machine, and you have everything you need, and Spock's brain because you have to have Spock's brain. Spock's brain, and right, right. that's Star Trek in a nutshell to the casual person being introduced for the first time. That's pretty much all you need right there. That's your that's your that's your starter kit. Yeah. Uh, It works
0: so well. I mean, this episode was parodied. I don't know if you saw it in a commercial for the 2013 Star Trek video game.
1: Oh, it's parodied everywhere.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. But uh, they're trying to sell this video game. And so they've got present-day William Shatner and then presumably an equally old Gorn uh, awkwardly trying to beat each other up (laughs) while they're playing the game. And it's funny and it works because everybody knows this episode.
1: I I have uh, on my Facebook uh, account, sometimes I use it as the header picture. It's a picture of Shatner and the Gorns sitting on a couch with video game controllers in their hands. Yeah, I think that's from that, that that's campaign. F- it's yeah. from the campaign where they were you know fighting each other for the game. Yeah, you know, it, <laughs> it's, it's achieved legendary status. I mean,
0: it's hard to know as an author or a creator what which one of your creations will resonate most with your readers or your, or your consumers, but I mean, this seems to be right down the middle for what most people want out of their trek.
1: That's my understanding is that it's it's definitely in the top, you know, it's definitely in the top tier of uh for the original show in particular uh, and I think it even holds its own pretty well when you start asking the 100 best Star Trek episodes across all the series I think it I, oh, think, sure. it, I think it comports itself well in most of those rankings Where would you place it Personally it's in my top 10 uh, Okay I have a hard time but I but those change you know it's like uh it depends on what mood yeah. I'm in Yeah but I've, yeah, yeah. I have I have perennial favorites that will never get boasted from the list. But um, yeah. every once in a while, I'll revisit one that I haven't watched in years, and I go, you know, what? that wasn't as bad as I remember, or the other Boys. way around. God, what, what what did I ever see in that? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that's more rare, though. I mean, at this sure. point, at this point in in my life, my my, my favorites are pretty dialed in.
0: Before we dial into, uh, speaking of dial into things, some of the more um, obvious warts that we mentioned before. Do you have any um, scenes or moments or characters that stand out for you in an episode of iconic moments? Is there anything that really takes the cake?
1: Well, I mean that whole business on the. I mean, well, I mean for good or bad, the the fight, the initial face off with the Gorn, you know, where he fights the Gorn right there after arriving on the planet. Right. Is, that is. At once, a memorable Star Trek scene and at the same time, the absolute worst example of hand-to-hand combat in any television <laughs> series ever. It, yes. Um, or, or it should. I mean, it ranks right up there with Steve Austin and Bigfoot in terms of like, status, <laughs> but I don't know that it's a memorable. It's, it's definitely not something you teach kids for self-defense. Don't do this. Right. Die.
0: right. But, uh, I get that the Gorn is slow, but like Kirk's blows not. are so telegraphed too. Yeah, I
1: know. Uh, I mean, it's but I mean, as a kid, it kicked ass, right? In every way, right? Uh, it's like I said when I was I was the same age, so I mean, I watched stuff like the Six Million Dollar Man when it was first aired. So when Steve Austin faced off against the Bigfoot, that was the best thing ever. Yeah, you know, right. eight. So uh, that's how I, I view it. I try to view it through those lenses, you know, it's like uh, what I remember loving about it. Because if I start yeah. to think at it, I'll just drive myself nuts.
0: Yeah, it'll fall apart, probably. Um, I, I like the fact that they leave the uh, components for weapons just lying around. Yeah. Like, I don't know if they designed this planet, or if it's just naturally rich in minerals. You know, Kirk says, oh, it's a geologist's dream. But it's like, it's like it's like they essentially left, like, a gun and like a clip <laughs> on the other side of the hill for the gun. And then like if he just puts all these things together, then of course, of course he can make a well, bamboo cannon.
1: What kills me is that he understands the significance of the raw elements and right. able to uh, collect the different ingredients you know, as you said, I'm sure that was engineered on the part of the Metrons. But I mean, and but they say that at the beginning, all the elements you need to compose weapons are are, are available. You just have to find them. So I right. suspect that they were placed there as part of the test. You know, but again, Kirk is able to recognize the significance of the raw materials, uh, and then of course he has the formula for gunpowder in his head. Uh, you know, didn't couldn't just call it up on, as an app on his phone or anything. That's and, true. And then yeah. he's able to correctly mix the ratio by hand. Right. Um. Without any sort of measuring tools or any way of, of, of what happens if you overmix it, what happens if you use too much of a particular ingredient? You know, what do you believe? Right. And, and he uh, did
0: kind of yeah. blow up his little cannon there
1: too. Yeah. So yeah. So it's th- that part you have to kind of suspend disbelief, you know. But uh, and
0: also that he would be familiar with gunpowder just in a society that I assume sure. doesn't use it. I mean, yeah. I guess like in Star Trek Two, he's got some old like blunderbusses on the wall, so maybe he's got like an interest in like ancient weapons, but.
1: Yeah, they sort of retcon his interest in antique weapons. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just to shore that up. But, you know, at, you boil all that away, and you get rid of all that because it's like, well, of course he was able to build the bamboo cannon and kill the Gorn because that's why he's the captain, you know. Exactly. He's, right. You know, and I think there was an episode of Mythbusters where they where they tried to recreate the bamboo cannon and yeah. they failed. And one of the first things all the Star Trek fans noticed was that they built it backwards. Oh really? You got it wrong. Kirk got okay. it right. The reason you didn't do it right is because you're not James Kirk. Right. So I mean, it, I mean, it was all in fun, but it was, it was. I did notice that immediately when they were recreating the, uh, the, the am Like it's backwards. You got it wrong. Right.
0: Right. Nerd. Speaking uh, of the warts we mentioned before, I, I like this episode in a nostalgic way, but sometimes I feel like I could kind of, t- or take or leave it. Um, I know that. Uh Kuhn supposedly wrote a full script you know before they ended up approaching Brown about the story, but this definitely feels like an episode that's adapted from a short story there's no B plot um, they don't even get to the arena planet until halfway through the episode and, and even then Spock's concerns about whether or not it's an invasion are ignored. um They have a extended sequence where they chase the Gorn ship and they're just basically saying numbers that go higher. um we don't get a good look at the Gorn ship due to budget constraints I'm sure and at the end, Spock is just deliberately narrating what we're seeing Kirk doing, and he's kind of obliquely answering McCoy's questions about it, it just in a way to sort of stretch the episode out. I mean, mm-hmm. could you do fifty minutes of just Kirk and the Gorn on the planet? Oh, maybe not, but I don't feel like a whole lot is else is added here.
1: Well, I mean, and that's you know, that's not necessarily against the particular episode because almost all the original shows only had one plot. They only had the main plot. There weren't those. Yeah, that's of true. That's true. And so you, know, you can't really fault. This episode for that—that's um, just the way they shot TV back in those days. Yeah. Um, but as far as yeah, it definitely—I don't—I don't know how much of the episode was written at the point they uh, realized that they had uh, uh, kind of walked on Frederick Brown a little bit. I suspect mm-hmm. that every—you know—obviously the latter half of the episode bears a resemblance to his story. Uh, yeah. but, but the setup is, is a little, little different as if I it's been many, 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 many years since I read the original story. Yeah. Uh, so I forget where the, where the actual line of demarcation is, but, uh, well,
0: if I remember, I didn't read the story, I read a summary of it though. But in that story, um, the human is you know, fighting an alien in an arena environment and he just, the, he just straight up kills the alien, like, right? That's the end of the story, like yeah. that's success. He's like he kills him, and then of course his whole race is wiped out because the alien lost this thing. Right. And it's like all
1: right, good deal. And you know that would have been enough. The alien, the the the, the combat and the and the consequences would have been enough for uh, somebody to cry foul. So even yeah. if even if Coon constructed all the setup and everything that led into the the fight, um, which I suspect he did um just that aspect of the episode alone would have been enough to call attention uh to the to the potential transgression so uh, yeah. i'm sure they aired on the side of caution uh when approaching mr brown
0: Oh uh, definitely yeah do you think if this episode had been um reproduced or they had uh, if this episode had been on TNG and it never been on TOS do you think that it would have ended differently um or had a different sort of theme or or kind of implications about what's going on
1: i'm sure there would have been much more um Introspection Regarding the Gorn and the Metrons, and it would depend on who was selected for the combat. <laughs> so, if, it, uh, yeah, if sure. it's Picard, you know, I mean, it would be interesting to see Picard in this kind of situation. I mean, he has had similar episodes where he's had to be on his own, like uh, most especially like the Darmok episode where he's. Sure, yeah. To, we
0: covered that on the show recently. And, yeah, uh, it's a very similar it's setup.
1: Very similar setup. So, he might approach it uh, in some aspects quite similarly, but obviously he would. Trying to solve the problem, they would they would write this this episode in a way that would lend itself more to uh, Picard's intellectual uh, approach to solving problems. Uh,
0: yeah, and I think that more would have been made out of the fact that um, so so Kirk um, at the end he refuses to kill the Gorn, and it's it's partially I think because we're better than that, but I, th- I think it's also mostly because. It gets to him that the Gorn were, in their own way, just trying to protect their own territory. So it becomes like, well, that's fine, that that's okay. I guess I understand what you were doing there. I mean, I won, but you know, we've we've come to some court of, um Now that you're lying on at my feet, you know, we can we can make terms. And, and that's, that's a very sort of '60s kind of way to look at it.
1: That's I, a very Star Trek way to look at it, too. I mean, that's you know, well,
0: especially in the early series. I think that the like next Picard would have. There might have been a similar outcome, but he would have felt really bad about it, and we would have gone, you know, to the credits with him looking out the window, oh, yeah. looking he if he did
1: the right thing. He would have felt bad about getting into the situation in the first place. I mean, I, yeah. I think he would have been—he would have felt guilty about the fact that they stumbled into it without understanding it or or misunderstood it. And, right, and took, where, yeah.
0: where Kirk rushes, where Angels feel, to, feel right. to tread. Yeah, I
1: mean, in, in Kirk's defense, you know, he's he's reacting because the minute he beams down, he's under attack, so he doesn't really have a lot of time to process it on the planet.
0: Oh, certainly, you know, yeah, and he wanted to go to Commodore Travers's table too. Of course, I so always good meal waiting for him.
1: That point, but that points to the first of many holes in the storyline. It's like, doesn't anybody run censors? <laughs> how come they don't yeah. know that the place isn't? You know, how do, how do they not know that the place has been trashed? You know, I,
0: True, yeah, and and of course, it's. I think it's suggested that the Gorn have um, sent these these fake messages you know in, a, in an attempt to trick them but the corn don't seem particularly articulate so i wonder how that would have even happened
1: like no idea and, you know we don't that but i mean the big one to me is you get to the planet you run a sensor scan and somebody says hey it's on fire, it's on fire <laughs> down there you know <laughs> yeah. uh so that's that's a hole that you have to kind of look past sure uh, but the, the, but star trek is littered with with setups like that where if you pick at it you, you just drive yourself insane
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Darmok. Like I said, we covered that on the show recently. And I see this episode, um, or at least I guess I'm looking at Darmok, but I think Darmok was intended as a thematic inversion of of this episode in a way. Um, And I think that adding the complication in Darmok of the lack of communication really lifts the episode up because that's a similar thing where you don't really have a B story. You cut to the ship, but they're just trying to figure out how to get um, Picard back. And in this episode, Kirk and the Gorn they can talk to each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you want to do like a, I don't know, like a cold war sort of parallel, like they have a red phone, but they're not really using it. They're only using it to basically threaten Kirk in one case, like just surrender. I'll kill you. And they don't really use it. And so I think that it's kind of underwritten in that sense, um, because you could add more building tension or you could add them maybe possibly at some you know act break coming to a possible connection but then there's a misunderstanding and then they're back at war again and the fact that it is merely just there and they don't really use it that's that's why it kind of feels to me like an early gotcha kind of sf story where there's like a twist and then it's it's over really quickly
1: if you take away the star trek elements and just put two random space travelers on a planet two dudes yeah to, to fight it out it's a twilight episode it's a twilight zone episode
0: oh yeah you know, yeah sure
1: with, with the twist at the end it's like well i'm glad you picked that because the, you know the winner was the one we were going to destroy because they're the more powerful threat you know, so, it's right. like, so uh, And that's, that's, that was in an early draft. That doesn't come across in the in the, in the aired episode, but I think it comes across – Where they're like, actually
0: going to kill the the victor in this exactly. case because they're more dangerous?
1: Yeah, because they, they perceive them as a larger threat. So I think I that comes – that's in an early draft of the script, I think, unless I'm it's okay. remembering a different story. And it's, I think it comes across in the James Blish adaptation of this episode. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. But it's been too long since I read any of that stuff.
0: That is interesting because it really ascribes a different motive to the Metrons that we don't get in the episode. They're just sort of – we're supposed to accept that they're a higher being or whatever, and they – you know, I bring you peas. Mm. But in that case, like, yeah, destroying the more powerful uh, race, that, that's, that, that twists it a little bit.
1: A little bit, and I, I, I want to say that that was an early draft and it didn't – or that or they just edited out that piece of the dialogue from the final scene. I, I don't – I yeah. have to dig in a little deeper. Now I've got a, now I've got a homework assignment. Okay, sure. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's been a long time since I read the 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 backstory of this episode. So, but I want oh. to say that that was under a twist somewhere. And I, it, I, it may have been in the James Blish adaptation, and he would have written this episode from an early. He would have written his adaptation of this episode from an early draft of the script. So. Uh, I see,
0: right when here. he's doing it for a collection.
1: Yeah, back in the 60s, they started you know, novelizing episodes of the original show and putting six or seven of them in a book.
0: I wonder if there was ever a uh, photo novel version
1: of this. Not of this one, no.
0: Okay, all right. I had the Tribbles one, and I had a couple other ones.
1: What? You don't have them?
0: I have all 12 on the shelf right over there? Oh, Dave. Uh, well, yeah, I'm a bad fan. I used to love those, because, especially as a kid, because I loved comic books as well. And um, I think I learned... Uh, my familiarity with episodes like Tribbles probably from the photo novel more than the TV show.
1: Well, what's funny is I I would buy those, um, and they they have thought balloons in them like the old comics used to have, and so right, they, they right. add dialogue that's not in the episode. Yeah. Right. And so you're you're rem- you're misremembering scenes in some of those instances. Uh, like, doesn't Kirk think? Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. This is Kirk thinking. Well, that's really stupid, or whatever it is that's popping in his head in the in the photo novel, but not in the episode.
0: They should uh, reprint those or do more of them.
1: Well, I mean, it's funny you say that because John Byrne, the the comic artist, is doing a series of photo comics for uh, IDW, where he is creating new stories by using photo manipulation from the original show to create, uh, you know, new stories.
0: Oh, wow, that's cool. He's
1: been doing it for a couple of years now. I think there's 10 or 11 of these. Uh, they call it Star Trek New Visions, but basically it's a photo novel of an untold uh-huh. story from the original show.
0: Well, okay, well, I got to check that out. Um, I wanted to talk really fast about the ending uh, of the episode here um, where we talked about how Kirk um, kind of gets the message that the Gorn were protecting themselves. Uh, Spock tried to say something about that earlier, but it's just kind of sinking in. And what I want to know is if that element didn't exist if kirk didn't put that together or it just wasn't true uh would he have killed the gorn anyway
1: i would like to think he didn't he would not uh, yeah. because he didn't know it at the time he made the decision to show mercy uh, he wasn't right. he didn't know that until after the that he chose not to kill him and, and made the metron show up um so my gut instinct is that he would not kill in cold blood and he would not kill when the enemy is defenseless
0: yeah, and maybe that's why in the episode, at least leading up to that point, they really have uh, Kirk be really gung-ho as well, because, I mean, Kirk can g- definitely get a burr up his ass about all kinds of stuff, but he's rushing into this confrontation with the Gorn. It's like, we have to destroy them, not disable, not communicate, You know, they just we have to take them out. And so it, dramatically playing on that element makes it seem like when he gets to the point and gets the chance to kill him he's going to do it but of course he pulls back because of course he does
1: of course because he does, he's yeah. he's captain kirk yes I mean, it's, but we've we've seen we've seen it already i mean he had a chance to to blow up the he had a chance to destroy the romulan ship and didn't bounce of terror and he yeah didn't. sure he even he even offered to help or uh at least open negotiations and and the Romulan commander said no so right uh, just just based on my own bias now i can't i can't see him doing it wantonly
0: Oh, no, of course not. And again, we've talked about iconic things that you, you've come to expect from Trek. I mean, that's what we expect from Kirk mm-hmm. at this point. He's not going to kill a fallen foe.
1: He's not afraid to get into a fight, but he's he's not going to start a fight, and he's not going to uh, kick you when you're down or continue to beat you when you're down. He's Once he's rendered you incapable of harming him, he's going to back off. Uh, right. Yeah, but he has no problem waiting right in there and throwing fists, obviously. I mean, that's – Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I just, I can't see, I can't see a situation where Kirk would kill somebody in cold blood.
0: I, I will say though, that's, I th- still think that's a very a sort of sixties American diplomacy, uh, sort oh, yes. of style that Kirk's ready to be magnanimous once he's already
1: won. Exactly. But, <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, We're all equal because I say we are. He took a knee, you know, even though, right. even though the score is <laughs> 45 to nothing. So
0: yeah, no, we're all fine. Yeah. That's the kind of theme that we usually get, I think, in, in original series episodes, um, Especially the idea of, like, you know, oh, we got it wrong, but we'll figure it out eventually. And I also think that there's this is used differently, like you mentioned before, um, when they bring Q into the next generation and they kind of add uh, dimensions to it. But, you know, hey, we can impress godlike aliens. Like, we're getting these godlike aliens go, you guys aren't so bad. Like, we can move time and space, but I can see a little nobility in you. Like, uh, there's hope, there's potential. We need that. Yeah, we need that sort of like our self-esteem. Well, I guess will be hurt if godlike aliens don't like
1: us. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's a popular. It's a it's a common that's theme so, that will be that's revisited. That's so original series. Time. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I think in the next generation. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say. I mean, that's one of the basic tenets is that we're always trying to better ourselves, and so that's how. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. Some of these really. episodes are morality plays that just they're they are as subtle as you know a sledgehammer to the face. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. So <laughs> this is one of those times <laughs> yeah i mean we're just one step removed from black side white side you know it's like in terms of oh, well,
0: and, and they do that as well oh yeah series. oh yeah so. <laughs> with frank gorshin yeah i think in next generation they definitely would have had something completely different like we mentioned where you know picard would learn we got a ways to go maybe we didn't get that this one right this time or or like in it like in darmok captain dathan dies it's not like everybody gets out and everything's fine like Paul Winfield dies on that planet before we can figure out what the right way to go is.
1: And 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 original series every once in a while ends on a downer note. I mean, like a uh, private little war when he's trying to mm. help out, you know, the the village people against the Klingons, and it's an armed yeah. race, and they they walk away losers in that one, uh, or at least or
0: uh, who mourns for uh, Ananias? Right.
1: yeah. Well, uh, so you know it's every once in a while, but you know definitely. I mean, Kirk's the action hero, so he's going to win more than he loses. That's pretty much a guarantee.
0: On a previous episode, we were talking about um, Darmok, and we were wondering what Kirk would do in the same situation. And just thinking about arena, I think Kirk would have drop kicked poor Paul Winfield <laughs> before he could even get a word out.
1: It would be interesting to see that. It would be interesting. Uh, well, I'm sure it'll show up in a comic book now or something. They'll they'll they'll, yeah, sure. right. they'll, they'll <laughs> invert the storylines and put each captain in the other's position in those partic- That'd be an interesting fan exercise. Yeah, you should write that. Take the captains and throw them into each other's episode and let them play out the events based on the way they handle situations. That right? Yeah. Thought exercise. Yeah. yeah.
0: I always wanted to see uh, Captain Janeway take on Malcolm McDowell at the end of Generations, like what what she would do in the situation. I wonder if she would punch you
1: like Cisco did, you know? Oh yeah, maybe. I know she would talk down to him. She would definitely she would definitely uh, be able to just you know verbally eviscerate him. We know that. Oh yeah yeah certainly I wonder if she would actually just go ahead and, and, and haul off and smack him That'd be right. <laughs> yeah because she
0: wouldn't but Captain Picard is so polite like I feel like his monocle is popping into his out into his tea every time you know Q does something like that but I don't think Janeway would have any patience for that.
1: I don't think she has yeah, she just doesn't have time for that
0: being a a sort of serious topic episode there isn't a, a ton of comedy but did you have a favorite joke or comedy bit from this episode?
1: I'm trying to think of the jokes. Are there one? Uh, they're really...
0: They try to cram them in at the beginning, um, and then, yeah, there isn't really much well, uh,
1: heading to the end. I guess the bit at the end where Kirk and Spock talk, and, and Spock asks him uh, asks him what it is he's thinking, and Kirk says, you know, we're a most promising species, Mr. Spock. And Spock's like, I have my doubts or something. I frequently have my doubts. There's some There's some exchange where he kind of talks down about humans the way he does every once in a while, that subtle jab. Right. But, uh, but Kirk comes back and says, you know, I, I don't anymore. I don't have doubts. You know, Obviously, we, we're a work in progress. Just that's it's that little banter at the end. I mean, it's this is one of those episodes that happens before the, the, the habit kicks in of them all laughing at the end of the episode. Right. That's right. That's know, five, seven laughing. people yeah. just died. That's not quite so prevalent at this point in the series. And so <laughs> uh, but I also like when uh, McCoy and Spock are watching the, 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 the drama unfold. <laughs> and, right. and Spock is providing his play by play commentary. And McCoy's like, "What? You know, if it was today and on Netflix, he'd be like, what the hell are you talking about or something? Right. Yeah. You know, what are you smoking? If, and then Spock, if asked. he
0: has the time. Yeah. How easy would it be to just turn to him, and say he's using sulfur and saltpeter and, <laughs> right. and diamonds to make a cannon. Right.
1: Yeah. Why? But I mean, you know, Spock, he's like you said, he's not going to use 10 words when 100 will do.
0: Uh, I, I like, um, the very short sort of fun interchange at the beginning that they have to cram in where they're talking about, um, going down to meet the Commodore and apparently, you know, he enjoys the, uh, the benefits of command, whatever that means. Oh, yeah. And they're going to have fun. And Spock's like, you're essentialist." He's like, yeah, you bet your pointy <laughs> ears I am. Yeah.
1: I've been eating out of, I've been eating powdered eggs out of a can for a while. Right. Day. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's that little bit of banter at the beginning is when they should be using sensors to determine that the right. on fire, but we'll let it slide. <laughs>
0: You know, so. uh, well, as we uh, wrap up here, did you have any uh, final thoughts, uh, anything that is unsaid about the episode? Uh, man, we covered
1: it pretty well, didn't we? Uh, I mean, yeah, I we there are a few looking at it through modern eyes. Obviously, there are, you know, uh, the the Gorn costume, despite the obvious zipper in the back or whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's still a pretty impressive bit of costume. It could be way worse. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's I mean, for to, for for that. For that time frame and the materials that they had, and the money they had, it's an impressive feat that they pulled off there. Um, but on the other hand, you know that foam boulder that Kirk is able to, to maneuver off the top of the clip is a little <laughs> cool. uh, yeah, right. But just as it, like I said, it's one of those episodes that you can that you can hold up as part of a Star Trek primer. Uh, you know, with, oh, sure. and it's just it just has everything that is quintessentially Star Trek, and in particular the original series. Uh, everything you love about the original series is is represented in this particular episode, and it's one of yeah. it's one of ten or twelve that 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 pull that off. You know, I agree.
0: Um, I I think I've come around a little bit. I it, I think in spite of its shortcomings, uh, you know, the original series has such strong episodes and such nuance sometimes. About not all the time though, and it it bugs me a little bit that this is what people uh, what people think of when they think of Star Trek. Probably uh, primarily. But it is a lot of fun, and you have to really enjoy that. And Kirk makes a diamond cannon on a barren planet, so that's, that's pretty great.
1: What I, what I try to tell people is that you know there's no one kind of Star Trek story. Um, oh, the, sure. The format allows for a, a, a broad spectrum of stories. And this one, if you look past the rubber suit and the terrible fight and, and that stuff, there is a message here. Uh, which oh, is certainly. which is what a lot of Star Trek stories do. They 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 suck you in and you don't realize. You know, when I was eight, it was all about the fight with the Gorn. And yeah. when, when I was, you know, when I'm when I'm 28 or 18, I start to see the message that's embedded in there, and that I should be paying more attention. So that's what I love about Star Trek is you can you can watch this thing as the years go by and you can always find something new that you missed during those earlier viewings.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain, and why?
1: My favorite captain is, and always will be, Jim Kirk. Uh, he is the childhood hero for a guy who never really grew up, <laughs> you know, or is still <laughs> still something of a child at heart, you know. Uh, yeah, he's he's the one I grew up with. He's the one that uh, I just hung on everything he did when I was a kid. Uh, he's still my favorite. I'm not saying he's the best captain because I can you can make an argument that Picard is the better captain. Uh, uh, in depending on the situation, but in terms of personal favorite, he's my he's my guy.
0: Yeah, well, you get no arguments here. Uh, at the end of the show, you will receive a commission in the rank of ensign. What department on the ship would you work in? That's a good question.
1: Um, I, I, I'm not going to say security because those guys. Just don't hang around long. So we'll go with the operations for now.
0: Um, I think I said this on a previous episode, but ops is, is the kind of job where I'm not exactly sure what you do, but I know if you get sick, we're going to be in trouble because you, you probably do a
1: lot. Well, it's like, you know, helm navigation, command track. It's a command track. That
0: makes sense. Uh, well, Ensign Ward, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online?
1: I am on the internet's, the googles or you know the interwebs at com. That is a portal for my blog and my Facebook page and my Twitter handle and whatever else that I keep sticking on there. That's basically gateway to banality.
0: Uh anything you're uh, working on right now you want to talk about?
1: I'd love to talk about it, but I can't. Uh you can't. <laughs>
0: No, i am mean, not in fact
1: today I delivered an outline for what will be the novel I'm writing here uh shortly. Um Okay. I'm currently working with uh, that, and that's for Pocket Books and their Star Trek line. I'm working on a, I'm working on another Star Trek travel guide for Inside Editions. Last year, I uh, they published my Vulcan guide. This year, I'm working on the Klingon travel guide to the Klingon Empire. And oh, well, good luck with that. Yeah, and I'm also in non-Star Trek stuff. I'm working on a – in fact, I'm supposed to be working on it tonight, uh, a short story <laughs> based on the Predator franchise. And that's uh, that will be for an anthology published by Titan Books uh, and edited by a man, an author named Brian Thomas Schmidt. And so it will be out later this year, supposedly in conjunction with the new Predator film that's coming out later in twenty. 20-
0: oh, yeah, yeah, the Shane Black one. Yeah, right. That's it. <laughs> that's enough, yes. Uh, thanks again for joining me. thanks for having me it was a lot of fun we are signing off until the next mission hailing frequencies closed
1: tell me what's